Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Keep the Faith brings you timely messages with in-depth spiritual analysis of current events in light of Bible prophecy so you can prepare for the coming of Jesus. Listen to what the news won't tell you. Here is another important message for our times. This is Pastor Hal Mayer. Dear friends, welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Thank you for joining me once again as we try to understand our times by God's Word and history. I pray that the Lord is blessing you and your family and that you are preparing for the soon coming of Jesus. As we begin this new year, we must thank God for His providence and recommit ourselves to Jesus. Let this year be the year you get victory over the enemy. Thank you, too, for your prayers and support. I am so thankful for how God has blessed this last year through your kind gifts and gracious support. They are greatly needed and much appreciated. One of the most incredible changes ever to happen to God's church took place at a time in which there is no biblical record. Yet the changes were so profound and so devastating that it is vital that we understand them in our own time. The Jews were led by Satan to their ultimate rebellion and to their rejection as God's church. There are many lessons for us today that we had better learn if we are going to avoid making a similar mistake in our day. Before I begin, however, I would like to urge you to order our brand new DVDs, Firebell in the Night, which were filmed and edited at Secrets Unsealed. This 10-part series has to do with the prophetic implications of the Trump presidency. If you've ever wondered about the forces behind Mr. Trump's meteoric rise to power and the polemic and reactionary environment we are in today, you will find this series quite interesting. Also, if you haven't already ordered your DVDs on religious liberty in the age of Trump, you should, because you will find them extremely interesting. Many people who listen to them tell me how insightful these DVDs are. Pastor Stephen Bohr and I teamed up with on these DVDs at Secrets Unsealed to bring you important background and considerable resources to help you understand the times in which we live. We invited Stephen Wahlberg and Gary Jensen to join us. Order them today at 540-672-3553 in the USA or 035963-7011 in Australia. You can also order our DVD series, Prophetic Secrets of the New World Order. The price is now reduced and you can get this entire 12-part series for $55 plus postage. And if you order both sets of DVDs, we'll throw in the postage for... U.S. and Australian subscribers. And as for others from other countries, we'll give you an extra 5% discount off the price for ordering the two together instead of free postage. Lastly, please order your subscription or bulk last generation magazines. You need these for your literature missionary work. Call their office at 540-672-3100 in the U.S. or email them at sales at lastgen.net. That's sales at L-A-S-T-G-E-N dot net. I should also point out that this is your last opportunity to renew your subscription if you haven't done so already. Sometime in February, we will remove all those who have not renewed. If you sent a gift in the last year, we will assume that you want to continue unless you tell us otherwise. And thank you for your support. 
If you've already renewed your subscription, don't worry about sending in your yellow card again. We have a generic subscription system that doesn't put individuals on a specific renewal cycle. So we do them all at once. Thank you for renewing and thank you for being part of the Keep the Faith family. I have presented this message some time ago, but I've decided to share it again because so many of you are new subscribers that have not heard it before. But it is so very important to understanding our times. Moreover, in light of last month's message on the direct attack on the last generation doctrine and on the three angels' messages from within God's church, this message will have more impact on all of us. We need to understand why we are in the spiritual condition we are in and have the conflicts that we have. And may God bless you as you listen to this important message. Before we begin to read God's holy word, we must now bow our heads and ask for his wisdom to understand what he wants us to know today. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your holy word and the truth that it contains for us today. Please send your Holy Spirit to speak to us about this truth and help us to understand what you wish to say to us. Help us to see how that what happened to the Jews before Christ came to this earth the first time has its parallel in our day just before Jesus comes the second time. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. To begin, turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs 2, verse 6. Here's what it says. For the Lord giveth wisdom. Out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. If we're going to understand the lessons that we're going to hear today, we need wisdom. We need knowledge and understanding, but we especially need wisdom. Perhaps I can share with you a few thoughts from something that came my way recently from Pastor Dan Viss of Fast Missions. He put these thoughts into the most succinct and cogent expression that I can ever remember hearing. I thought I would share them with you. I have modified them a little bit and edited in some of the thoughts the Lord shared with me as well. I hope you'll find this very interesting. The Bible teaches that there are three levels of brain comprehension, knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. They're like brass, silver, and gold. They are progressively more valuable like silver is to brass and gold is to silver. Character is often referred to as metal. For instance, Fundamentals of Education, page 500 says, Take heed, lest what you now think to be pure gold turns out to be base metal. And in Testimonies for the Church, volume 5, page 101, we read, The pure and the base metal are now so mingled that only the discerning eye of the infinite God can with certainty distinguish between them. But the moral magnet of holiness and truth will attract together the pure metal, while it will repel the base and counterfeit. My friends, let the moral magnet of Bible truth work in your life so that you are drawn away from the base metal of the world as you purify your life. But let me explain about these three metals in relation to comprehension. The Bible explains the connection between understanding and silver and wisdom and gold. Ezekiel 28 verse 4 says, With thy wisdom and with thine understanding thou hast gotten thee riches and hast gotten gold and silver into thy treasuries. So wisdom is like gold 
and understanding is like silver. And Proverbs 16, verse 16 says, How much better is it to get wisdom than gold, and to get understanding rather to be chosen than silver? Oh, it is pretty obvious that silver and gold are like understanding and wisdom. Knowledge is a discovery of Bible truth through a thoughtful examination of what is written. These include historical facts, doctrinal declarations, and even scientific statements. With knowledge, we know what the Bible actually says. Each fact is truth and is trustworthy, but it is not all you need. Knowledge has to be useful in some way. I liken it to brass. It has reasonable value and knowledge is needed, but it is the least valuable of these precious metals. Children can be loaded up with facts, and if they get a lot of Bible training in their early years, they can recite facts better than us older folk. They have knowledge, but it's not enough. Understanding involves the principles of Scripture. These are the timeless laws that make up the moral fabric of our universe. Understanding is found in promises, warnings, commands, and the stories of Scripture. If you interpret the facts correctly, you comprehend what is right and what is wrong. And when you can distill the principles out of the facts of Scripture, you have an understanding of how God wants you to live. It's like silver. It's precious, and it is important to have. But it's still not the most precious metal of all. Wisdom is the final and most important level of comprehension. Wisdom is the application of the facts and principles that we learn from Scripture. We have to attach them to specific, concrete attitudes and actions. Real changes can happen in your character when you apply wisdom to the principles of the Bible in your own life. It is the gold standard. A person who is wise is one who not only understands God's will, but acts on it in a timely way. Wisdom tells you what you need to do right now and how to plan for the future. For example, Daniel used wisdom when he asked to see the king when his life and the lives of all the Chaldeans were in jeopardy. His wisdom was very timely. He then used wisdom to give the king spiritual counsel from God and warn him against arrogance and pride. To be wise, we need to have the facts. We need to understand the facts and draw out the moral principles. And we have to then apply those moral principles in a practical way in our lives. So please turn with me in your Bibles now to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 18. Here's what it says. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. The Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Notice the contrast between the preaching of the cross and the thinking of the Jews. The Jews were looking for a sensational manifestation of truth in order to make them willing to believe. This is not wise, because the enemy can create a sensation. 
They were in some ways like the charismatics of today who want a religion that mostly involves their senses and feelings, but which largely ignores the intellectual and truly spiritual. On the other hand, notice that the Greeks were emphasizing the intellectual and avoiding the emotional. The Greeks seek after wisdom, Paul said, verse 22. Paul saw that something happened between these two groups of people, the Jews and the Greeks, that he believed would also threaten God's church. He could see what had happened to the Jews under the influence of the Greeks, and he warned all of God's people down to the end of time what was to come. Originally, the educational system God gave the Jews was simple, practical, natural, and designed to create love and loyalty to God and an understanding of his law in their hearts. If Israel had remained loyal, God would have blessed them so much that they would have been the admiration of the world and consulted regularly. God's educational plan would have prepared Israel to announce the Messiah's salvation to the world. Do you think that we have a problem in following the counsel of the Lord today in our educational system? Somehow we think we know better than God. We think that we can educate our young people the way we want with all the trappings of modern ideas of education, and it won't matter. We'll still produce good men and women who live good lives. But friends, if we refuse to follow God's plan of education, His blueprint, we will end up doing just as Israel did and turn our backs on God and refuse to give the announcement that Jesus is coming soon. We will turn our backs on the special work that God has given us to do in these last days as his unique generation, reject the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the latter rain power, and fail to do the work that God has given us to do. God's chosen people, the Israelites, stoned the prophets, went whoring after idols, languished in Babylon, and ultimately rejected Christ the Messiah. After returning from captivity, being fearful of idolatry, they hedged themselves with rules and regulations to prevent apostasy. Satan knew it would be extremely difficult to entice Israel into rank idolatry again, so he tried another angle. At the end of the Medo-Persian Empire, Alexander the Great conquered the civilized world. But his sudden death left the empire divided between his four generals. The Greek Empire championed worldly masters of wisdom. Aristotle, Socrates, and Plato laid the foundation of Western culture. They tried to solve the moral dilemmas of society using worldly pagan philosophy. Though Greek civilization flourished economically, their system of philosophy and education failed to produce the moral system that could change the heart and make it truly noble. It had no divine system of evaluating right and wrong, no standard other than itself to judge righteousness. Do we have this problem today? The idea that what is right for you is right is now quite pervasive in society and it has crept into the church in many ways. For instance, there is this popular idea that we can have unity in diversity. You can believe what you want about doctrine and I can believe what I want and we can still all worship God on Sabbath and have unity with one another. Friends, that's not God's way. True unity comes only in truth. And it's not actually possible. It is sort of an ecumenism within the church. Because if someone raises an objection to a false doctrine, someone else will say, please don't do that. You're just causing controversy. Meanwhile, the error continues to grow while good people are silent. 
sophisticated Greek culture required highly developed colonization and city life. The city-state was the only social concept of mature Greek culture. But it was not a city with walls and fortifications. They were more interested in the usefulness of the city in which to engage Greek culture. Grecian kings were known for establishing large cities, colonizing and mixing the cultures together under Greek principles. Colonizing large cities removed people from the natural, simple influences of the country and engaged them in the complex, man-made, and the artificial. Previous empires forcefully imposed their culture and religion on those nations they conquered, but it was always difficult. By contrast, Alexander was the first emperor to leave national culture and religion alone from a military standpoint. Nevertheless, Hellenistic philosophy, economics, lifestyle, language, and the arts sunk in very deeply. By popularizing their culture and education, they could integrate it into other cultures, resulting in one vast Greekdom under their intellectual masters. Keep in mind that culture and religion go hand in hand. Religion is part of culture, but culture can affect religious belief and practice in dramatic ways. This strategy of the Greeks was very effective, not by creating an empire controlled by military power, but by creating a cultural empire built on ideas and a way of thinking that would influence nations throughout all the rest of time. What Babylon and Medo-Persia had failed to do by force of arms, the Greeks did by force of intellect and by the power of their culture. Though their military power was relatively short-lived, the power of Greek intellectualism is still with us today in every aspect of our lives. No wonder Paul wrote what he did. The Greeks seek after wisdom. But it was worldly wisdom and worldly philosophy that could not resolve the moral problems of men. That can only come by relying on the sure word of God. Today we have the same problem in our Western cultures. There is a massive turning away from the Word of God and a turning toward more and more of the Greek ideas of solving the world's problems. And this influences the church. It infiltrates and revises the thinking of young people especially. They in turn have their families and teach their children nothing higher than what they themselves believe. And if our lives and the lives of our children are not referenced to the moral principles and standards found in the Word of God, they degenerate to where they are no better able to be righteous than a cat or a dog, almost. The effect of Hellenistic or Greek culture on God's church during the 400 years between the last Old Testament prophet and the time of Christ is instructive to his church today. There were no prophets to speak to God's church, and the Bible is otherwise silent concerning the history and condition of the church during this period. Tragically, many of the same principles the Greeks used on the Jewish church, which led to its terrible rejection of Christ, are being used on God's church today to prevent it from receiving the latter rain. Most of God's people don't see themselves as part of the last generation. They do not see that God has given them a special work to do that is unique from all previous generations, and now the assault on last generation doctrine is on. One of the four generals that took control of the southern part of the Greek Empire after the death of Alexander the Great was Ptolemy I. He began the Ptolemy dynasty that ruled from Alexandria, Egypt. This kingdom had the most influence on the Jews during the 400 years just before Christ came to this earth as a babe in Bethlehem. 
Moreover, the change that took place during that time had far more impact on the Jews and their faith than it did on other nations. The reason was because the Jews were so different from the Greeks than those other nations. The Ptolemies were very willing to let other nations' leaders close to the circles of power in Alexandria. They invited these leaders to participate in at least certain aspects of their government. They also involved them in key aspects of Greek culture, including religion and the arts. It was a sort of political and cultural ecumenism, but it had powerful effects on Jewish religious thinking. Today we have a similar convergence within politics and within religion. On one hand, there is a strong ecumenical movement within religions leading the churches and the religions to tolerate each other, cooperate together, and even enter into alliances with each other in the name of peace and coexistence. Of course, that has its own destination, which is leading the churches back toward Rome. On the other hand, there is also a political effort to moderate the nations into a sort of global political harmony that tolerates almost all ideas, including serious abominations, and leads to a so-called peaceful coexistence. U.S. presidents have preached that message routinely, as does the Pope in Rome. The basis of these movements within religion and politics comes directly from Greek philosophy, upon which both the papacy and Western nations are founded. Political and religious ecumenism is merely a continuation of the trajectory of Greek ideas. The main idea is that nationalism, cultural extremes, and even war can be reduced or eliminated if everyone is mixed together and governed by a central global authority. That's why migration from poor nations into wealthy nations is so important to the Vatican. The chaos that mass migration brings to a nation is an excuse for greater control. The Vatican promotes this principle because ultimately she can use it to lead the nations, kindreds, tongues, and peoples to look toward her for moral guidance. Remember, the Bible tells us that power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. This strategy of integrating political and and thought leaders into Greek government and culture was intended to strengthen Greek cultural integration back home. But in no place was this more effective than in Israel. It was a Trojan horse that eroded Jewish uniqueness and undermined God's special purpose for the Jews to get the world ready for the first coming of the Messiah. The pagan Greeks were very friendly to the Jews. Alexander and Ptolemy I offered them equal rights, benefits, and protections with all other citizens. This friendly relationship between the Jews and the Greeks caused large Jewish communities to arise in Alexandria, Egypt. The Ptolemy strategy to integrate Greek culture into Jewish life was a multi-pronged approach through their educational system, their economy, and through entertainment and the arts. The Jews were intrigued by the intellectualism of the Greeks and eventually became enthralled with it. The Ptolemy dynasty controlled Egypt in the south, Judea, Phoenicia, and the surrounding regions. The Ptolemy kings wanted to merge religions by taking the good parts of each and integrating them into a combined Greek religion. This ecumenical project was difficult from the standpoint of the Jews. They were unique and peculiar. But for the Jews to remain faithful to God, they could not intermingle their religion with others. They had to remain separate and distinct. In fact, they were forbidden to associate in an ecumenical way with uh, all false religions. After all, 
None of the other nations had religions that were based on God's holy word. They were all pagan. The Jews would have to change in order to merge their faith into the religion of the empire. Other religions could more easily be adjusted to fit the mold, but not the religion of Israel. Dramatic revisions would have to be made to integrate the Jewish faith into Greek culture. To accomplish this project, the Ptolemy kings established an educational center and library in Alexandria. The library was unique. They tried to bring all the religious texts of all the various religions throughout the empire into this library, have them translated into the Greek language, and then made them available for study. One of the Ptolemy kings strategically commissioned 70 rabbi scholars to come from Judea to Alexandria and translate the Old Testament, their sacred oracles, into the Greek language. The result of this translation project is called the Septuagint. This would no doubt also open opportunities for the Jews to become more familiar with the culture of the Greeks by exchanging ideas with the Greek master philosophers. The Jews would have vainly seen it as an opportunity to influence the Greeks with their own sacred texts. But that was only the beginning. Promising and talented Jewish youth were no doubt invited to Alexandria's schools and then, with their degrees, come back to teach in the Jewish schools. Because Greek culture was becoming quite popular, the Jews thought this was a good way to bring fresh thinking and new perspectives into Jewish life. The average Jew was enamored with Greek lifestyle and materialism, and the prospect of wealth strengthened the Jewish fascination with Greek thinking and culture. Meanwhile, Greek intellectualism crept into Palestine. The Jewish priests had made themselves singularly wealthy from the offerings of the people and had become corrupted. Their chief aim, it seemed, was to gain money. What does scripture say? The love of money is the root of all evil. Since the priests were essentially the national leaders, they guided the course of their country according to their ambitions and became easy prey to Hellenic influences, which improved their chances of increasing their wealth and influence even further. But a broader economic principle was to come into play in Judea, which would affect everybody, not just the priests. The Ptolemy king made a certain Jew the head of tax collection from Phoenicia to the borders of Egypt. He in turn appointed his own countrymen to help him. These enriched themselves and in turn invested in Judea, showering it with money and wealth and improving economic conditions. This investment in Judea raised the people from poverty to prosperity and changed the course of Judean history. Please understand that Satan was primarily interested in the Jews. He already controlled the Greeks and other pagan nations. The Jews were the object of Christ's supreme regard. They were his church. They were going to have the Messiah. Satan knew that they must be prevented from accomplishing their mission at all costs. Perhaps that's why the Jews were so courted by the Greeks. Their lifestyle and principles were so different from the Greeks, hence the Greeks concentrated on them. And in the end time, Satan's primary object is to get God's people off of their mission, off of their spiritual principles, and prevent them from proclaiming present truth. Do you think he's been trying to get God's remnant people to forget their message and mission and thereby miss the latter reign and not proclaim the near imminent return of Christ? Of course he is. Why should we see all this modernism as a good thing? 
It is undermining our love and loyalty to God and making us less and less willing to witness for our faith, particularly when it involves sacrifice. The newfound wealth from all this investment in Judea helped turn admiration for the Greeks into emulation. Jewish tastes became more refined. They became interested in less practical arts, especially in painting. Their homes became more beautiful. Their clothing copied the fashions of the Greeks. But the simple habits and customs of the Jews designed to keep them loyal to God and separate from pagan idolaters was lost. Though they no longer bowed down to idols, they were guilty of a new idolatry to the gods of reason, materialism, and fashion. It involved a new way of thinking, a new way of acting, and a new educational system more compatible with the prevailing ideas of Greek culture. But it was the Jewish leaders that led the youth of the day in to adopting extravagant habits and frivolous customs. They copied the Greeks in everything from eating and drinking to fashion and finances. They indulged in wine, music, drama, theater, and other entertainments. They placed more importance on making money than on spiritual values. Greek fashions became customary in Judea. The youth would exercise under Greek hats and flaunted the popular Greek country dress through the streets of Jerusalem. As the new educational system advanced within Jewish society, so did the corresponding love of worldliness and monetary gain. These enchantments greatly appealed to the youth, who were quickly drawn into dissipation and unchastity. Has this happened to God's church today? Today there is a similar fascination with fashion. God's people often dress like the world. For many years now, women have worn that which pertains to a man, though designed perhaps to be a little more feminine. And now some men are even wearing that which pertains to women. See Deuteronomy 22 verse 5. It is so common now that most of God's people don't even realize what they're doing. God's people, both men and women, often dress to express and expose their sexuality. And it is not just out on the street. But also, it is often in sacred worship services in God's church of all places. Also, I don't know how many Christian weddings I've been to in recent years where modesty is thrown to the wind. Even though we are living in the antitypical day of atonement, jewelry now seems to be everywhere. Frivolous fashion draws attention to the outward appearance, which means nothing to God and offends him. Remember what God said to Samuel, The Lord seeketh not as man seeketh. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. That's 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. So why should we dress and adorn ourselves in ways that draw attention to the outward appearance? I'm not saying that we should not look neat and tidy, or that we should not have nice clothes. I'm referring to the misuse of fashion and modesty to draw attention to ourselves or parts of ourselves. For many reasons, gender roles in modern society have become so confused that there is now so much disorientation that it has led to great social controversies in things which God never intended should arise, such as homosexual lifestyles and even gay marriage. God's people today seem to have the idea that because we have to love everyone, we had better not speak out against sin. We have been leavened by the very same Greek principles that were used on the Jews. The Greeks loved their festivals, which consumed a large share of public life. Some important Jews, familiar with Ptolemy's court, witnessed and even participated in the corrupt orgies connected with the numerous Greek festivals. 
These leading Jews brazenly introduced them at Jerusalem, including the wine, dancing women, and pagan music in among God's church. The result was that there was less interest in the festivals that God had given to his people to inspire them with truth and soul-saving education. Moreover, there was a steep decline in morality, particularly among the young. You see, the Jews have been gradually re-educated into thinking like the world. Some of the leading Jews knew that in order to Hellenize the Jewish church, they would have to control the education of the young so the Jews could become as much like the Greeks as possible. Some of the most influential Jews shamelessly conspired to systematically Hellenize the Jews through education and eventually abolish the faith of their fathers. The goal of these progressives, if we should call these liberals that, was the complete incorporation of Jewish life and customs into worldly Greek culture. It should be no surprise that the same thing has happened to us. We are living in a time when many of God's people want to be as much like the world as possible. They even think that we should do away with the three angels' messages and anything else that has made us distinctly the last generation. Greek education put a high priority on sports. The Jewish revisionists introduced games, races, wrestling matches, and contests of all sorts into Jewish schools, even though Jewish law sternly opposed these innovations. One of the high priests, named Jason, introduced the Olympian Games into Judea and built a gymnasium for this purpose in the heart of the city close to the temple. Jewish youth flocked to this Olympic shrine within their own borders. Greek sportsmasters were hired to teach them the games. The Jews crowded the stadium. Even the priests neglected their duties in the temple so that they could participate in the games. There was one embarrassment to the Jews. The participants in Olympic games were required to compete naked. One of the distinctive marks of Jewish singleness to God was circumcision. Yet this became a mark of shame under the influence of the Greeks. And to prevent derision, Jewish Olympians undertook a special operation to disguise this. And little wonder. Competitive sports are contrary to God's system of education. And this symbol of their singleness to God was a constant reminder of their new idolatry. Perhaps for the benefit of those that are new to the Bible's condemnation of competitive sports, I should refer you to Philippians 2 verse 3, which says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. There can be no doubt that sports are a form of organized strife. After all, the Greeks had invented them, particularly the Olympics, in order to keep their soldiers fit for battle. Most people who have played or watched the more dramatic sports games recognize the overt physical brutality and strife among the players and even among the fans at times. But the same principles are at play in games with less physical contact. The players still try to overcome their opponent rather than cooperate with him or her. And there's still the competition, which is contrary to the spirit of Christ. Many people think that competition is a good thing because it teaches some good lessons. For friends, all competitive games are focused on taking advantage of another's weakness in order to gain the point or win the game. This is not the principle of Christ, which urges us to help one another on the path to heaven. Moreover, competitive games are full of vanity. The winner is bathed in glory, particularly if it is an important national or international tournament. But even in a local Christian elementary or primary school, the winner is the one that gets picked first for the next game, 
and is the one on whose team everyone else wants to be. This vanity increases pride and arrogance, a spirit that is contrary to the principles of heaven. Furthermore, many sports games involve deception. You fake one move and then do another. This is breaking Jesus' commandment, which says thou shalt not bear false witness. Some say you cannot avoid competition in this world. And while this may be true, the Christian can avoid it as much as possible and minimize his involvement. He certainly does not have to fill his mind with sports games. Competitive sports and games have become to this generation what they were to the Jews during the Greek Empire. They're a form of idolatry, which has been sanctified and approved by the churches, pastors, and teachers. How can we be so undiscerning? How can we lead our children to Jesus when we first lead them to the spirit of competition and supremacy over each other? If you would like more developed thoughts on this, ask for our sermon, Like the Idols of the Nations, and we will be glad to send it to you. The decline in standards fostered by the liberal leaders led to a general disregard and even denial of the fundamental truths of the Jewish faith. By the act of its own people, wrote one historian, Jerusalem has renounced its age-long isolation and come into line with the great Hellenic world. The increasing fascination with Hellenic culture led to less interest in the old Jewish laws and ways. Little by little, the things that made the Jews distinct, their very identity, became open for discussion. Even conservative Jews began to question their old traditional beliefs. They wondered if the teachings of Judaism were actually correct. They could see that their old teachings were in conflict with Greek reasoning. Yet the Greeks were so successful. Could it not be the blessing of God that they were so beneficial to Jewish economy? They gradually replaced God's definition of success with Greek ideas. Do you see this happening today? Actually, it's quite easy to see. We're living in a time when the old landmarks are being undermined and eroded, whether in prophecy, doctrine, or in practical standards. It became so bad in Israel that many leading Jews began to wonder if God really required self-denial and whether God was really concerned about man at all. You see, these two things go hand in hand. How can we understand that God loves us deeply and sacrificed himself for us if we ourselves have no desire to help others and sacrifice for them? Self-sacrifice is one of the ways that God helps us understand his love for us. God ordained sacrifice to help us grasp the principles of heaven. Yet, in today's society, self-sacrifice is rarely practiced. We build large homes for our personal use, and then we have to buy all sorts of furniture to put in them. Then we have to maintain them and keep them working properly. The idea seems to be that the larger the home, the better. Would it not be better to place these resources into God's work and live simply, even if we have the resources to purchase more extravagant homes than we need? And there are many other examples that could be given. The rabbinical schools of the Jews continued to operate, but as Alexandria-trained rabbis held sway over the curriculum, the training in these schools became greatly compromised. Increasingly, they were less practical, less biblical, and more theoretical. There was an emphasis on the study of the Greek philosophers instead of the Jewish prophets. Sports, games, wealth, and luxury were glorified, and worldly motivation replaced an interest in service in God's cause. Year after year, the Word of God was studied less as the educational curriculum moved toward intellectualism and rationalism. Year after year, man was exalted and God was less thought of. 
the degreed rabbi was extolled and the unlearned depreciated. No wonder Jesus never attended the schools of the rabbis or the theological seminary in Jerusalem. What would happen if ministers today refused to attend the seminary like Jesus did? Would they be more pious? Would they preach more from Scripture? Would they be more willing to preach about the sanctuary and the investigative judgment? What about the sanctity of the Sabbath or other distinctive principles of our message, rather than ecumenical ideas that merely focus on love and unity? In Judea, ceremony increased as piety diminished. More emphasis was placed on the Mishnah and the Gemara. The Mishnah was a commentary on the Bible, which added many laws and ceremonies. The Gemara was a commentary on the Mishnah, which again added more regulations and rules. There was a saying in the Ethics of the Fathers, another commentary, which went something like this. A child of five years should study the Bible. At ten, the Mishnah, and at fifteen, the Gemara. As a student advanced in years and increased in mental ability, he studied God's word less and man's writings more. What do you think this did to their understanding of the great principles of the sanctuary, which were designed to protect God's people from worldliness and teach them the way of salvation? In the Jewish mind, these things began to become less and less important. Fidelity to God's law was seen as too narrow and restricting. Attendance at temple services was less and less. The simple truths of the sanctuary message failed to impress their minds anymore. Liberal compromises do not bring peace and unity. By the 2nd century BC, the degeneration of the Jewish faith led to severe internal conflicts, creating a reaction. Those that opposed this liberalization banded together and formed the Hasidim, or the pious. The conflict between the liberals and the conservatives pushed both parties to opposite extremes so that they could not comprehend each other. The conservatives accused the liberals of backsliding, breaking the law, and of fearful sin. The liberals accused the conservatives of folly in retaining the old landmarks and of undermining national progress, prosperity, and stability. As you can imagine, the conservatives trying to uphold the historic principles were accused of causing the disunity. Does that sound familiar? Arguments arose on all fronts. Disagreements about sports, food, medicine, worldliness, and philosophical problems created a general discord. Both parties struggled for political influence. The liberal Hellenizers wanted one of their number to replace the conservative high priest, and soon the burning question in Jerusalem was whether it was really necessary that the high priest be a descendant of Aaron, leading to fears that the liberals would desecrate the high office. Women's ordination has become the same thing to us today. The people generally took the middle course. They enjoyed the luxuries, refinements, entertainments such as drama and theater and the ever-present sports, but disapproved of the extreme liberal excesses because they did not want to break their connection with the past. Some even began to rationalize that the Jews were the special objects of God's affection. These changes in society, buttressed by economic strength, were actually blessings from God and should be accommodated they said. The conflict and strife in Jerusalem with its political intrigues drew the attention of Antiochus Epiphanes, who marched on Jerusalem in 169 BC. Antiochus desecrated the temple and made the keeping of the Sabbath and circumcision capital crimes, while forcing the Jews to keep the pagan festival to Dionysius. 
The revolt of the Maccabees and subsequent wars eventually restored the temple and Jewish nationality under the control of the conservatives. But the infiltration of Greek principles was never eradicated. The enemy had succeeded. The Jews had departed from God again, and to supply the lack of spirit, the conservative rabbis made the Jewish religion much more legalistic in order to restrict Hellenism's progress. Yet the religious leaders had lost sight of the true object of their faith. They multiplied ceremonies without understanding their real message. Meanwhile, the Jewish church had become so compromised that full reform was essentially impossible. By the time of Christ, it was obvious that even he could not change them and had to start a new church. As the Jews had departed from God, faith grew dim, and hope had well nigh ceased to illuminate the future. The words of the prophets were uncomprehended, wrote God's messenger in Desire of Ages, page 29. The influences of pagan culture, philosophy, and lifestyle had so gutted the religious life of the Jews that when Jesus came to them, only a few humble souls recognized and welcomed him. Even the masses that followed him daily looked for a temporal kingdom, and when threatened by the religious leaders, they deserted him. Can you imagine how sad heaven must have been to see the reaction of the Jews to Jesus? Imagine their horror at the hatred that was directed at Christ. Imagine the heart-sick angels that ministered to Jesus as he was persecuted by the priests, as he anguished in Gethsemane, was beaten by the Romans, and hung on a cruel cross. Imagine the shock and horrified amazement of heavenly beings as the church leaders mocked him and derided him as he hung on that cross. Unbelievable! Satan had been so subtle and so slick in captivating the minds of the Jews with all these liberal compromises and then creating a conflict that prevented them from coming back into the balance of truth. It is difficult to imagine, perhaps, but is it not probable that Satan is working to do the same things to God's church today? As difficult as this may be to accept, it is true. Here is how. In our day, there has been a similar loss of the core principles of truth in God's church, and the parallels are phenomenal. For example, to meet accreditation standards, teachers attend evangelical secular seminaries for advanced degrees, in the Greek tradition, no less, and bring evangelical teachings back into the seminaries that should be training youth to give the last message to the world compromising the training of younger pastors. Years ago, the liberals knew that the only way to change the church was to control the educational system. This they have done quite successfully. Our schools have replaced agriculture with Greek pagan concepts of games and sports, and have tried to become as much like secular schools as possible. The gymnasium or stadium has become the new shrine, the distinctive features of God's educational system that were to set our educational system apart from the world have been largely eliminated. Academic curriculums now emphasize less Bible and more evangelical theology and ecumenical teachings. Like the Jews, we have developed an entertainment mentality, which includes celebration-style worship services, movies and theater, amusement parks, computer games, dancing music, and the ever-present sports. Many of us live in city environments where these entertainments are more easily available, Similar to the Jews, affluence consumes our time and energies, providing little time for God and family. Many are more concerned about making money than about their spiritual life or the eternal salvation of others, and many among us try to become as much like worldlings around us as possible. 
Like the Jews, many now question the distinctive features of our faith. Many progressive leaders, as liberals like to be called, are determined to incorporate evangelical religious culture into our distinctive lifestyle and completely do away with the faith of our fathers, the three angels' messages, and the last generation doctrines or principles of our faith. Many of us have become ashamed of the distinctives of our faith and, like those Jewish athletes, want to hide or minimize them. It's interesting to note that Jewish distinctives such as the Sabbath and circumcision, once compromised, eventually become a target of repression under Antiochus. Will similar compromises lead to the persecution of those who uphold the distinctive truths that God has entrusted to the last generation, perhaps even by those of their own household of faith? Conflicts between liberals and conservatives today are so polarized that they often can't understand each other. God's plan of true education, designed to strengthen the loyalties of God's people to the law of God, is almost wholly extinct today, except for a few self-supporting schools where young people learn the biblical principles of our faith. There would be no place for youth to avoid what God calls foolish Greek principles that prevail in our Christian educational institutions. Compromise has gutted the spiritual education that is to be given to our youth to the point that many graduates have little or no motivation to serve God's cause. The burden rests on you and me, my friends. We cannot wait for others to change the church. We are the ones that must keep the faith. We are the ones that must uphold its principles and reveal it in our characters and live like we believe that Jesus is coming soon. The Jews were so steeped in Greek education and lifestyle that they could not discern that among them was the promised one, Jesus the Messiah. They viewed him as unlearned and lower class because he never studied in their schools. They hated his public, pointed accountability of their infidelity to the law of God. They despised his simple teaching about how to be saved. But most of all, they were angry that he refused to obey their authority and follow their rules. The Greek system of education and philosophy had destroyed the Jews' capability to comprehend Jesus' mission and they ended by crucifying him. Is it possible that many of us are so steeped in worldly Greek principles that we will treat the genuine manifestation of the Holy Spirit similar to the way the Jews treated Christ? Is it possible that many will miss the latter rain while it is falling all around them because they have refused to follow God's simple plan of education? How many among us will miss the last opportunity to cooperate with heaven in the final warning message to the world because they have frittered away their preparation time in sports, entertainment, or in worldly pursuits. Perhaps we need to rethink our relationship to Christ and the world around us and find where we are personally compromised and do all in our power to recover our faith and live by it in our homes, schools, and churches. Perhaps we could gain much by restudying the sanctuary services that God gave to Israel to illustrate his principles of salvation. If we understood Christ's powerful love for us personally and comprehend his purpose for each of us in these last days, we could see the pathway through all the temptations and attractions that the devil would throw at us. Christ and him crucified is to be the center of our lives, but we must also understand that he is proposing to mature our experience so that we can have characters that reflect him so fully that we turn from sin completely. If that is our focus, we will escape the dangers of worldliness and selfishness.
How is it with you? How is it with me? Are we striving to become part of the last group of people that will understand and reflect the fullness of the character of God through Jesus Christ? Will you join me in living for Jesus today, my friends? No matter how much ridicule, no matter how difficult it will be, no matter how much persecution? Will you join me in pleading with God for a true, mature, and full experience with Jesus? Will you join me in digging deeply into His Word for truth? Let us pray. Father, it is in Jesus' name that we come to you today. We know that we have often compromised our faith and have adopted worldly principles in our lives, even after we have professed to accept Jesus and the truth for these last days. Help us to see how dangerous it is to play with Satan's devices. Help us to see how to come apart and be separate from the world. Help us to leave these things behind and look only to heaven, for that is where our home is. We are on the borders of the promised land, our heavenly home. May you sanctify us and purify us and make us ready so that when the Holy Spirit is poured out, we will be part of that great final warning message and that we will not reject him and miss out on this crucial time. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. I see 
We hope you have greatly been blessed by this month's message. Your prayers and gifts mean much to us. Thank you for your support. The song you've just heard is entitled, Oh, Let Me Walk With Thee, sung by Christian Berdahl. It is recorded on a CD with other beautiful hymns called Consecration. If you would like a copy of the CD, just send $16 postpaid to U.S. addresses to cover the cost, and we'll send you one. Please mention Consecration CD. Our international listeners should send $20 USD. The following is our monthly prophetic intelligence briefing, a feature that brings you current events in light of prophecy, especially for those who love the appearing of Jesus Christ. We can see the signs of the times telling us that we are nearing the world's great crisis. May the Lord find us faithful. Our first item this month... And now it is the Oakland Diocese. Bishop Michael Barber of Oakland has announced that the diocese will release the names of all clerics credibly accused of sexual abuse of a minor. I hope and pray the publication of these names will help the innocent survivors and their families in their journey to wholeness and healing, he wrote in a letter dated October 2 and released on October 7. The list will include the names of diocesan and religious priests, as well as extern priests. Anticipated to be released in roughly 45 days, the list is meant to be as accurate as possible, the bishop said, noting it will take some time to verify information on international and religious priests. A former FBI official known for advocacy for justice in clergy sex abuse, Dr. Kathleen McCheesney, will assist in the review of clergy files and the audit of the diocese's process. Once the list is published, McCheesney and her associates will fully review the files to ensure our list is as accurate as possible, Bishop Barber said. He said this second review will not be completed before January 1, 2019. Bishop Barber expressed hope that this list would help purify the church and create a transparent environment. This is the latest step in the ongoing commitment of the Diocese of Oakland to stop the scourge of sexual abuse of minors and vulnerable adults, he wrote. This public accountability will allow you and others in our community to see we are keeping our promises. We have nothing to hide. It is the right thing to do. The bishop said the Diocese of Oakland has continually improved its accountability process, utilizing background checks and mandatory safe environment training for all church employees and volunteers. He also said the diocese welcomes regular audits from outside firms to guarantee all parishes and schools are compliant. Bishop Barber expressed support for the mutual support group, No More Secrets Group, which has been meeting in the diocese since 2002, helping adult survivors through sexual abuses that occurred in childhood. If anyone is aware of sexual misconduct by a clergy member or employee of the diocese, he asked them, to make a report to the authorities or Stephen Wilcox, Chancellor, 
and Victims Assistance Coordinator for the diocese. I realize other victims may step forward with new information. Any accusation will be fully investigated by our Independent Diocesan Review Board. We intend to update our list as we receive new information. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, Mother of Harlots and Abominations of the Earth, Revelation 17, verse 5. Next, experts say more deadly disasters to come. Indonesia is facing a long and painful recovery from the devastating earthquake and tidal wave of recent weeks. But scientists say that this latest calamity could simply be a warning of more deadly and destructive disasters ahead. Palu in Indonesia's central Sulawesi province was ravaged on September 28 by a 7.5 magnitude earthquake and tsunami that lashed the coastal city with waves up to 20 feet tall. The twin disasters claimed nearly 2,000 lives. Some 74,000 people lost their homes and will live in refugee camp-like settlements for the foreseeable future. It's been a year of natural disasters. Hurricane Florence dumped record rainfall on the Carolinas. Typhoon Mankut triggered landslides and killed dozens in the Philippines. And turbulent wildfires tore across California. Another earthquake on Indonesia's Lombok Island in July killed over 500 people. But the damage those earthquakes cause and the threat they pose to human life is increasing. A report last year from the Belgium-based Center for Research on the Epidemiology of Disasters, CRED, documented slightly fewer natural disasters in 2017 than the previous decade but a 49% increase in the economic losses those events inflicted. The reasons are clear. More humans are moving into more densely populated cities and surrounding themselves with infrastructure, roads, bridges, and buildings that become deadly hazards during a disaster and expensive to repair when it subsides. People, infrastructure, and wealth are being concentrated into increasingly exposed urban centers in the most hazardous parts of the planet, says Bill McGuire, Emeritus Professor of Earth Scientists at University College in London. Disaster preparedness is not keeping up. Earthquakes and tsunamis have proven particularly deadly, claiming nearly 750,000 lives over the past 20 years, more than other extreme weather events, according to a forthcoming report from the UN Office for Disaster Risk Reduction. Much of that mortality came in 2004 after a 9.1 magnitude earthquake in the southern Indian Ocean generated a devastating tsunami that killed an estimated 230,000 people in 12 countries, the majority in Indonesia. In some cases, the very factors that make coastal cities appealing also amplify their danger. Many are built in the path of tropical storms or alongside tectonic faults that mirror coastlines. Palu is no different. It sits at the end of a long bay which protects its residents from sea storms, McGuire notes, but that bay also helped concentrate the tsunami's destruction, raising water levels and guiding it directly towards Palu's inhabitants. There's no simple answer to this problem, McGuire wrote to Time in an email. Cities are simply located in the wrong place. This is not a good time to move to a city. Too often they're vulnerable to massive natural disasters. 
The restraining spirit of God is even now being withdrawn from the world. Hurricanes, storms, tempests, fire and flood, disasters by sea and land follow each other in quick succession. Science seeks to explain all these, the signs thickening around us, telling of the near approach of the Son of God, are attributed to any other than the true cause. Men cannot discern the sentinel angels restraining the four winds that they shall not blow until the servants of God are sealed. But when God shall bid his angels loose the winds, there will be such a scene of strife as no pen can picture. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 6, page 408. Next, Myanmar Christians forced to sign vow to curb their faith and not pray in church. Hundreds of minority Christians in Myanmar are being forced to sign papers vowing to limit their faith and not pray in churches, pastors have warned. A church leader identified as the Reverend Lazarus, General Secretary of the Lahu Baptist Convention in Kayang Tong, Eastern Shan State, said that close to a hundred Wa Christians were released by the United Wa State Army after they agreed to the orders. Christians who signed the pledges are now mandated to only pray privately in their homes and not in churches. Lazarus added that 92 ethnic Lahu Christians remain in captivity. However, while dozens of churches have been shut down, he warned that the believers are faced with no choice but to sign the papers. Christians will face more restrictions and be closely monitored by the United Wa State Army, so the situation is worrisome, he said. The Reverend Tang Sin Lian, General Secretary of the Myanmar Baptist Convention, said that meetings are being held discussing the fate of the 92 captive believers. We are praying for the Christians in the Wa Hills, Lian said. The UWSA, which grew out of the Communist Party of Burma, expelled five Catholic nuns and six lay teachers in September and has been destroying what it claims are unauthorized churches in the region. We want stability and rule of law in our area so extremists may be arrested. Such measures are necessary as we are preparing to celebrate the 30th Peace Festival on April 17 next year. And no extremism is allowed, said Yu Nai Rang, the malicious spokesperson. The April 2019 date in question refers to the 30th anniversary of the USWA ceasefire with the Myanmar government. The military group has accused Christians of causing instability in the area. It has been targeting churches built after 1992, arguing that they were built without permission. Aaron Maung Maung Tun, director of the Publications Department of the Lahu Baptist Convention, said that the army is looking to use Christian schools that have been closed for its own purposes. I heard that the Lahu Bible School will be used as a Wa police station. We have sent a letter to the WA, but have received no reply, Toon said. The UWSA has been arresting Christians by claiming that religious leaders are violating laws that prevent foreigners from serving in churches. It has also accused believers of forceful conversions. The Lahu Baptist Convention, based in the eastern Shan State, has separately shared fears that the UWSA is forcing Christians to serve in its army. The UWSA has also forcibly recruited 41 male and female students who were participating in Bible study classes in various churches, Lazarus told Radio Free Asia earlier this month. Then Jesus said unto his disciples, 
If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Matthew 16, 24. Next, biometric facial recognition to board flights is coming. Omnipresent facial recognition has become a golden goose for law enforcement agencies around the world. In the United States, few are as eager as the Department of Homeland Security. American airports are currently being used as laboratories for a new tool that would automatically scan your face and confirm your identity with U.S. Customs and Border Protection as you prepare to board a flight, despite the near-unanimous objections from privacy advocates and civil libertarians who call such scans invasive and pointless. According to a new report on the biometric entry-exit program by DHS itself, we can add another objection. Your flight could be late. Although the new report published by Homeland Security's Office of the Inspector General is overwhelmingly supportive in its evaluation of airport-based biometric surveillance, like the practice of a computer detecting your face and pairing it with everything else in the system, the agency notes some hurdles from a recent test code named Spirit 8. Among them, the report notes with palpable frustration was that airlines insist on letting their passengers depart on time rather than subjecting them to a a Homeland Security surveillance prototype plagued by technical issues and slowdowns. Demanding flight departure schedules posed other operational problems that significantly hampered biometric matching of passengers during the pilot test in 2017. Typically, when incoming flights arrived behind schedule, the time allotted for boarding departing flights was reduced. In these cases, CBP allowed airlines to bypass biometric processing in order to save time, as such passengers could proceed with presenting their boarding passes to gate agents without being photographed and biometrically matched by CBP first. We observed this scenario at the Atlanta Hartsfield-Jackson International Airport when an airline suspended the biometric matching process early to avoid a flight delay. This resulted in approximately 120 passengers boarding the flight without biometric confirmation. The report goes on to, again, bemoan airlines' recurring tendency to bypass the biometric matching process in favor of boarding flights for an on-time departure. DHS apparently is worried that it would be habit-forming for the airlines, repeatedly permitting airlines To revert to standard flight boarding procedures without biometric processing may become a habit that is difficult to break. These concerns, however, are difficult to square with a later assurance that airline officials we interviewed indicated the processing time was generally acceptable and did not contribute to departure delays. The report ends up concluding that this and other logistical issues pose significant risks to CBP scaling up the biometric program to process 100% of all departing passengers by 2021. And it has some ideas to do something about it, namely enforcement mechanisms or backup procedures to prevent airlines from bypassing biometric processing prior to flight boarding. As the success of biometric-reliant line-skipping services like TSA Pre, Check, and Clear have shown many flyers are happy to swap their irreplaceable biometrics in the name of convenience. The prospect of missing a connecting flight, however, could bring out the pitchforks. Our whole system of surveillance is being increasingly used to manage and control movement, making identity processing digital 
would increase government ability to restrict movement by citizens. It could easily be used against citizens who end up on some database as a suspicious person. When religious laws are imposed on the nation, travel for those whose convictions run afoul of the law will be virtually impossible. We have no time to lose. The end is near. The passage from place to place to spread the truth will soon be hedged with dangers on the right hand and on the left. Everything will be placed to obstruct the way of the Lord's messengers so that they will not be able to do that which it is possible for them to do now. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 6, page 22. Next, State tells Christian filmmakers make same-sex marriage films or spend 90 days in jail. Two Christian filmmakers appeared before the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals in St. Paul Tuesday to challenge Minnesota state law, which they say illegally forces them to produce and create films expressing messages that contradict their core beliefs. Telescope Media Group owners Carl and Angel Larson have already been threatened with hefty fines and up to 90 days in jail if they choose to disregard the law. The Larsons want to enter the wedding industry. However, the state's Human Rights Act stipulates if the couple creates films celebrating their Christian beliefs about marriage, that marriage is between one man and one woman, they must also create films about marriage that violate their beliefs, including films promoting same-sex marriages. The government shouldn't threaten filmmakers with fines and jail time to force them to create films that violate their beliefs, said ADF senior counsel Jeremy Tedesco in a press release. Carl and Angel are storytellers. They script, stage, conduct interviews, capture footage, select music, edit, and more, all to tell compelling stories through film that promote their religious beliefs. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled 7-2 in Masterpiece that the government must respect the belief held by countless Americans from all walks of life that marriage is between one man and one woman, he continued. The Eighth Circuit should reinstate the Larsons' lawsuit and order the state to stop forcing the Larsons to speak messages about marriage that violate their beliefs. In 2017, the Larsons tried to challenge the law as unconstitutional, but a lower court dismissed their case and mandated that they service same-sex weddings or close this part of their business. They are now appealing to the Eighth Circuit Court. According to the ADF, Minnesota officials have repeatedly stated that private businesses, such as the Larsons, violate the law if they decline to create films promoting same-sex weddings. Penalties for violation include payment of a civil penalty to the state, triple compensatory damages, punitive damages up to $25,000, a criminal penalty of up to $1,000, and even up to 90 days in jail. Likewise also, as it was in the days of Lot, Luke 17, verse 28. Unfortunately, our time is up. Remember, there are more prophetic intelligence briefings on our website at ktfnews.com. It's been a great pleasure to spend this time with you. I hope you have been encouraged to live for Jesus, for we are near the end. Remember that God has a plan for your life and that right now you can make a new start with Jesus. Thank you for your prayers and support. And until next time, may God bless and keep you and your family in His loving and protecting care. Keep the faith.